As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, if you are newer here, or maybe you've been away for a little while, uh, you've stepped into the third week of a series that we've started called The Church. And uh, we are walking through what theologians call ecclesiology, a study of the church, a theology of the church. What does the Bible have to say about the church and why then does it matter for us? An increased understanding of the church will strengthen the church and make the church more effective as the vehicle that God has chosen to use to reach the world. We do not take that lightly, and at the same time, we understand that there is much confusion in our day and age, and maybe even a collaborative in this room, there's much confusion about the church, about what it means, about what it means to be committed to it, about the role of the church in our lives and in this world, and so our hope and prayer is that we're going to clarify that as we continue to march through this series. We began the series where we ought to begin, with, which is with an understanding of Jesus Christ as the King of the church. He holds sole authority over the church. And then last week, we looked a little bit more specifically about the extension of that authority into the church and how God has designed the church of Jesus Christ um, to actually hold that authority and to use the authority that he has delegated to the church for his purposes and his glory on his behalf. And this morning, I want to look at what we kind of addressed last week, but I want to dive in a little bit more in depth, and that is this, that is the role of conduct in the church. We talked last week about how the church has been given the authority and responsibility to evaluate and help to manage, in a sense, the conduct of those who are a part of the church, of believers, to regulate that conduct according to the authority of God's word. God's word helps us to bind and loose one another under the authority of God's word. In other words, God's word teaches us how to live the Christian life. It's interesting when you come to the New Testament, if you look through and you read through the New Testament with these kind of uh, spectacles on, glasses on, what you find out is that the majority of the New Testament is teaching us about the behavior of Christians. What does it look like and what does it mean to live as a follower of Christ? All of it always rooted in a theology of who we are in Christ. We've all been told and we've all heard that the church and Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And I think we all recognize that in that kind of a statement, there's a strange tension that exists, doesn't there? We're in this world and yet we're not of this world. We're here and now, and we're kind of immersed in one sense in this world, but we're not really supposed to look like this world. And there's increasing difficulty, I would argue, in terms of understanding that and putting that into practice in the Christian life. It's hard to imagine that we're supposed to be here and be appealing to the world, and yet at the same time look so radically different from the world. A scholar and author, Larry Hurtado, writes these words. He says this, a successful religious movement must retain a certain level of continuity with its cultural setting, and yet it must also maintain a medium level of tension with that setting as well. That is, he says, a movement must avoid being seen as completely alien or incomprehensible, but on the other hand, it must also have what I mean by distinctiveness, distinguishing features that set it apart in its cultural setting including the behavioral demands made upon its converts. 
There has to be, he says, a clear difference between being an insider to the group and an outsider. I think that's incredibly important, and that's really what we're diving into this morning. And from the earliest times, Christians and the church of Jesus Christ was seen as radically different from the world around. Christians stood out in contemporary culture. They were distinct from the world. In fact, a second century document called a letter to Diognetus um, says these words, second century. Listen to how it describes Christians in the church. It says this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress and food and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet, listen to this, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven, <clears throat> obedient to the laws. They yet live on a level that transcends the law. This is written about Christians in the second century, embodying what all of the New Testament says a Christian is supposed to look like. It was beginning to happen right away in the life of the church by the power of the Spirit of God. The word church itself, we talked about it last week, means a gathering or assembly, but I left out part of that definition intentionally for this week. The word for church in the Greek is the word ekklesia. It's a compound work in the Greek language. It's made up of two distinct words. The first word is the word ek, which means out of or from. The second word comes from a, 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 a root word, which means kaleo, which means to call out, to be called. And so you see the sense of what the church is by its own definition is to be the called out ones. Those, in other words, that have been set apart and have been separated from another distinct group. We understand, I think, if, if we're honest and we look at the Bible that the scriptures clearly teach this, but at the same time, the church has so often struggled with this concept they struggle with this tension, this idea that they are to be uh, separate from the world that they live in in so many regards. In fact, the church has often felt the pull back to who they were, to what they used to love, and to how they used to live before they knew Christ. Sadly, in our day and age, it is often very difficult to look at the church to look at professing Christians, those who say they follow Jesus Christ, and to see any kind of distinguishable difference in them from those around them. And that's a big problem. 
It's a big problem because the church is supposed to be the vehicle that God is using to reach the world, and one of the means through which he is reaching the world is by showing the world how different we are from them. The church in Scripture is called the pillar and buttress of the truth. We are ambassadors of the king. We possess a delegated authority from the king, and we are called to represent the king, how different and distinct he is from all the other gods of this world, from every other deity that could be worshipped. And you see, in that sense, it is our distinctiveness from the world that God is using to ransom many from the world. This is a call this morning from the word of God to be set apart. It's a call to check your life, to evaluate it against the word of God and to determine if you are actually set apart and if you are living in such a way that makes you distinct from the world around you. This is so good for you and for me to constantly evaluate what our lives look like against the call of scripture. We're gonna see essentially three things. The call to be distinct in the sense that we're going to look at who we are, what we believe, and then how we live. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 gets right at this idea of distinctiveness, of separation, and he begins in verse 14. Let's look at it together. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God." A powerful section of scripture that describes who we are, what we believe, and how we live. It defines for us how we are set apart and how we can continue to be set apart. So let's ask this question, how can I be set apart? That's what we're going to answer this morning. The first way that we can be set apart is by doing this, beware of worldliness. We have to be, be aware of the worldliness that surrounds us and the temptation to be like the world around us. You'll notice in the first couple of verses, Paul uses a, a bit of a, a, a word picture there for us to grasp this sense of separation. And he says this in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, right away, what you need to pay attention to is that Paul here is creating a distinction. He's drawing a line, and he's saying that there is a massive difference between two people that exist in the world. And really, he's not simply calling us to be distinct in who we are. He is demanding that we do that. He is telling us that it's already taken place. 
We are commanded here to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The, the metaphor there has its roots in, in agriculture and, and the idea of being yoked together uh, with another animal. Oxen uh, plowing a field would have that yoke put around their necks that would keep them in sync together. And so the picture here is a vivid one that reminds us of who we are not striving to be the same as, who we are not striving to walk alongside with in terms of the manner of living and life. Now, we do need to to be very clear about some things. Paul is making a distinction here. He is discriminating in the right sense of that word. He's drawing lines between those who are in the church and those who are outside of the church. We looked at that in detail last week as well. And now what he's doing is he's telling those who are in that they must make a break with those who are out. What does he mean by that? Does, does he mean we can't have friendship with people who are unbelievers? No, that's not what he's saying. Does he saying. Is he saying that we can't have any contact with people who are unbelievers? No, of course, that's not what he's saying. Is he saying that unbelievers, people who do not believe in Jesus and follow him as their Lord, are not welcome in the church? No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, let me just say this to you. If you are here today and you're an unbeliever, we actually believe this is one of the best places you can come to get a glimpse of who your God is. And in fact, we want you to know as you walk in this place that there is something fundamentally different between the people here who say they're believers, followers of Jesus, and you. We want you to see that there is a distinction between you and them in that they know the God who has created them in a personal and intimate way, and they've been saved by this God because, listen, we want you to know that because we want the same thing for you. We want you to see that there's a radical difference. Now, many people have looked at this text and they have thought that it speaks directly to a marriage. You guys have heard that. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Well, that's talking about marriage. Or some people have looked at it and said, well, this is talking about uh, contractual business relationships. Now, here's what I would say to that. That's not what this text is talking specifically about, but it is an application of this text. Paul is speaking primarily here to partnership in pagan practices. He is making a distinction with worldliness and who we're called to be in the church. He's looking at the church and he's looking at, at those who call themselves Christians and he's saying, look, he's like, you can't continue to live the same way you used to live. You can't continue to model your life after people who don't know the God that you say you love and worship. You can't continue to walk the way you used to walk. Everything has fundamentally changed and so you must look completely different. Those things that are common in the world, but contradicts God's word, must no longer be a part of you. So stop running to try to partner yourself, to try and link yourself, to try and yoke yourself with those who are pursuing something fundamentally different. And the way in which he kind of unfolds the distinction and the distinctiveness of those who are in the body of Christ is unfolded in the next couple of verses. What he does here is he highlights five contrasts with five questions. And his intent is to remind believers of why they're distinct, what makes them distinct. And so this rhetorical kind of questioning that he uses drives this distinctiveness home. And so we'll look at all five, and I've broken them down like this. First, notice this, that we have a distinct disposition. We have a distinct disposition. Here's the first question he asks. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
He's getting here at a disposition that is changed in the believer, in the individual who follows Jesus Christ. This is a distinction between a sinner and a saint. If you look back in chapter 5 to verse 21, look at what he says there. He says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's saying, listen, when you didn't know God, when you didn't have faith in Jesus Christ, you were defined in your disposition by lawlessness. You lived opposing the law of God, but now, now you have been made righteous. You have been given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, credited to your account. Your disposition is entirely different than it used to be. And he says that disposition makes you distinct as a people. The second way he demonstrates the distinctness is is this. He says, we have a distinct desire. You see, because your disposition has changed, your desires too have now changed. You used to desire rebellion against God, but now because of the work of the Spirit of God and the new life that you've experienced in Christ, you have new desires that are flourishing, desires that were not previously there. He says, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Light and dark are used as metaphors in scripture to describe moral and ethical conduct. And so what he's pointing at here in effect is is he's saying this, listen, you're now characterized by new desires. You have distinct desires to please God, to love God above all others, to love others then as a result of that, to sacrifice and to serve for the welfare of others. Your desires are no longer in sync with the desires of the world who live for themselves, for their glory, for their own benefit. Paul talks later in the New Testament about the deeds of darkness. He reminds us that we're now children of light because we have the very light of Christ within us. And he looks at the church and he says, listen church, darkness Immorality, unethical behavior is no longer the pursuit of your life. It must not define you. You are different. You have a distinct desire. And then third, he notes this, that we have a distinct dominion. Our disposition has changed. Our desire has changed. And then he makes this potent statement. He says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial, a representative figure in ancient religions of Satan himself, the prince, the king of the demonic realm. And he's highlighting here the two different masters now that we have the potential to serve in this world. And ultimately, there's only two different answers. The ancient world, listen, was filled with a plethora of pagan deities, a plethora. In fact, it was very common to be polytheistic. You had a god that you worship, but not only that, is as you kind of grew in your own kind of living, you embraced gods from other religions. Maybe you had some primary gods that you served, but you had a multitude of gods that you lived for, that you sacrificed for, that drove so much of of your life. But what Paul is saying in one sense is it's theologically important. 
There is really only two different options. That there's, there's not, in a sense, kind of two great go- or multiple gods in one sense. There are really two great gods. There is Satan, who is the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. All the other gods kind of follow underneath him. And then there is King Jesus. Pastor Brian, a couple weeks ago, preaching out of Colossians one, remind us that we have been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are under new dominion. We have a different king and a different kingdom from the world around us. He asks another question, and here's what it draws out for us. It's this, that we have a distinct destiny. He says, Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What is their portion versus our portion? What are we getting out of this versus what are they getting out of this? And this really separates, listen, the two distinct destinies for all of humanity. There is a broad road and there is a narrow road. There is a way to eternal life and there is a way to eternal destruction. And our destinies, in many ways, dictate our present life. Where we know we're going drives the way we choose to live. We live as citizens of another realm, another kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been given the gift of eternal life. And we sing this song, right? This world is not our home. We're here but for a moment. Because we have this distinct destiny, we don't live for what the world lives for. We have a greater hope. We have a greater promise, a greater security. We have a greater everything. And then he says, lastly, we have a distinct deity. He brings us to what's ultimately most important. What or who we worship. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? There is a massive distinction in our worship, not only in how we worship, but in who we worship. We worship the one true and living God. We don't worship idols that are made by the hands of man. Their worship is false. Our worship is true. In Paul's day, Christianity was kind of upsetting the apple cart in a lot of different ways. You read through the book of Acts, and one of the the slights against Christians is that they were actually diminishing the the economy in one regard, and it's in this regard. Listen, that the sale of idols was actually decreasing. It was hurting people economically who were in the business of creating and selling idols. Why? Because people were changing their deity. They were being transferred to a different domain and dominion, and so they worshiped in a different way, and they determined to worship the one true and living God. Now, idols were commonplace in the ancient world. They're not so common in our culture and day and age, at least not in the visible sense. Idols today aren't nearly as blatant as they were in Paul's day and age, but I think the idea behind idolatry is just as prevalent here and now. The question really this text, this portion forces us to ask is this, what or who am I worshiping? There's a lot of answers for this, and I could sit here and give you a list of things that maybe you're potentially um, inclined to worship, 
But I want to give you a way in which you can maybe evaluate your own heart this morning because really the idea of worship here is paramount. There's an easy way to tell, and it's simply to look at your life and determine what your life revolves around. You want to know what you're worshiping? You want to know what has a grip on your life, the thing that you're bowing down to? Look at what your life revolves around. Let me ask it another way. Do you plan God around your life, or do you plan your life around God? If you're inclined to fit God into your life, it is an indicator, listen, it's an indicator that you are actually bowing down to different idols in your life. You know that God is the supreme deity you worship. There is no competing idol in your life. Listen, when all of your life revolves around God, when all of your life is centered in and around Him, everything you do comes back to that central question about where God is in the midst of it all. Is God an addition to your schedule or is God at the center of your schedule? Just look at the way you spend your time. Look at the way you plan your week. Look at the way you plan your life. Is God at the center of it all or is he simply slapped on as an addition after you figured out how you want your life to look and how you want your life to go? How about this? Do your priorities shape your worship or does your worship shape your priorities? When you live to worship God, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, it begins to shape all of the priorities of your life. They begin to be slotted into their rightful place. But when your priorities, God out of the picture, begin to dictate your life, they begin to dictate your worship. The gospel rearranges our lives. It rearranges who we are. And that's what Paul is driving at in this first point. This entire passage, by the way, it implies that the church often does not see how they have aligned themselves with the world. Paul's writing to a church here. And Paul is having to correct their thinking and their living. He's having to address what he sees as a problem in the first century. You are living far too much like the world around you. You're not as separate and distinct from the world uh, as you should be. And, And listen, Paul's words apply to them in that context, but they apply equally to us in our church and in this context. We sadly, listen, look far too much like the world around us. Many of us, let's just be honest for a moment, many of us are indistinguishable from the world around us. We don't look different at all. The only thing that maybe makes us look different is we show up here once a week for an hour and a half to two hours. And once a week's being generous. (laughs) There are many Christians who look so much like the world that they don't even realize it. They're camo Christians. (laughs) just blending right in. Mark Sayers, um, he writes these words. He said, believers have unwittingly absorbed the belief that one can maintain both strong Christian faith and social currency within Western contemporary culture with little or no friction. 
Many Christians have believed they can become friends with the world and friends with the church, and they live in that tension. And the Bible says, if you want to be friends with the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Many Christians want to have their cake and eat it too. Listen, you want to be lukewarm. You want to straddle the fence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is part of the reason we're doing this series. It is to wake us up to the reality of what we're called to be. Listen, this is very, very important. There are way too many lukewarm Christians in this world, in the church, and that is what's producing an ineffective church. And God himself wants to spit you out of, your, out of his mouth if you're simply lukewarm. He is saying, in effect, choose. Choose a side. Get in or get out. But stop straddling the fence. You're actually slowing the people of God down if you're straddling the fence. You're doing a disservice to the mission of the church of Jesus Christ if you're simply straddling the fence because you want to have your cake and eat it too. And the Bible's calling you off the fence. And it's not calling you simply to get out. Listen, here's the plea of God today. Get in. Come on. Let's go. Life is too short. How many times do we have to say that and yet not believe it? Life is short, get off the fence, get in the game. Let's start moving the ball forward. Eternal realities at stake for millions upon millions of people in this world and God has called you and me to be a part of the solution to reaching the world. Far too many Christians are unequally yoked with the world. They're like an elephant trying to plow a field with a mouse. Circles, right? You feel like you're spinning your tires in the Christian life? Maybe this is the issue. Too many Christians joined at the hip of the world they've been called out of. So many Christians have spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. We have been ransomed and redeemed from what held us captive, but we're constantly going back to what previously imprisoned us. We run back to our captor and say, I know I'm free, but I just love you so much. So why? Why do we do this so often? Here's one reason, because we become like what we behold. And so many of us, listen, we need to hear this. You may need to hear this. I know my heart needs to hear this. We willingly behold the world around us. We willingly look at the world and say, that's what I really want. I want what this world has to offer. I want the pleasures. I want the comforts. I want the goods of this world. I want everything this world has to offer. And then we wonder why we start to look like the world. You say, how do I prevent this? Listen, if that's your heart this morning, you're in a good place. If you're at least here and you're saying, I don't want this, I want to fight this, you are in the right place and the spirit of God is working in your heart. Let me say this, here's how you prevent this. You must develop the skill of discernment. You must develop the skill of discernment. That's what Paul is calling them to. He's asking these questions so that they can begin to process and consider how they're different. He wants to give them a grid through which they begin to discern, to consider what is right and what is wrong, what is pleasing to God, what is displeasing to God. This is a call for the church to develop discernment so often we believe discernment is, is simply um, looking at and avoiding the things that are wrong. But let me say it like this. We need to develop a taste for what is good. More than that, we need to develop a taste for what is better. True discernment is when we have a host of options and we pick what is good, we pick what is best. The goal of discernment is not simply to avoid the evil in this life, it is to learn what is good so that, listen, so that we might embrace and enjoy it. 
You say, how do we develop the skill of discernment? The answer is somewhat simple. We look to the book. We get the book. Listen, we get into the book and we get the book in us. Our life becomes governed by the authority of God's word. We take it in, we ingest it, we meditate upon it, we memorize it. This book defines everything about us. It helps us understand the heart and the mind of God. It gives us the ability and the strength to discern what is true and not true, what is right and what is wrong, what is evil and what is righteous. We get to the book, we take it in, and we follow what it says. Let me give you one more way in which we must do this. In order to become discerning people, we also must separate our need from, for approval from our decision-making. Listen, the problem with worldliness is this. We want to be loved by the world. That's the greater problem. Not only do we want what the world has, we want to be loved by the world. None of us wants to look weird. None of us wants to be thought of like, right? We hate the idea of being different or distinct. In fact, our, our culture actually hates that idea too. And so what we do is we call people who are different special. Listen, be okay with being distinct and different. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Seek not the world's approval, but God's approval. Stop loving the world, start loving God. Because, listen, you already have been set apart. You have been if you're in Christ. You must be aware of worldliness. Secondly, you must believe in godliness. You must believe in godliness if you want to be distinct. We are distinct in who we are but we are also distinct in what we believe. Here in the latter half of verse 16 all the way through chapter 18, Paul calls the church to believe two promises that were made to the people of God in the Old Testament. He quotes directly from the Old Testament, and he begins by playing off of the Old Testament concept of the temple of the living God. And here's what he says to the church. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. We are the place where God's presence dwells, where God's glory is manifested. He wants us to feel the weight, listen, in what he's saying. He wants us to feel the responsibility of this. And so here's what he does. He now takes six Old Testament passages and he stitches them together to drive two strong and important points for us. I'll give you the verses in a minute, but uh, for your own sake, if you want to look them up later. But let's read the passage. Here's what he says. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Just precious Old Testament verses for the people of God. God wanted them to believe two foundational truths that would radically separate them from the world around them. He wanted them to see these realities and then he wanted them to live in light of them. Here's the two realities that he wanted them to believe. The first is this, the promise of intimacy. The second is this, the promise of identity. Intimacy and identity, 
They form for us this picture of godliness that marks off or separates the people of God as a distinct, unique, peculiar people. So he pulls together these six Old Testament verses. They were initially given to the nation of Israel to reinforce this call to separation. And what he does now is is really, really fascinating. He applies them to the New Testament people of God. He applies them to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, in their context, all six verses refer to God's promise to restore Israel, exiled Israel, to their land in their context. Those Old Testament events find their fulfillment in one sense, in the cross and resurrection. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, listen, there's fulfillment that's happened in Christ Jesus, and now we are partakers of these very same promises. These Old Testament events find their fulfillment in the cross and resurrection. In other words, these Old Testament events of exile and deliverance, they foreshadow and they prefigure, they point to a greater deliverance and a greater exodus that would culminate in Jesus Christ. The physical exodus, the physical deliverance from bondage, from another, a captive nation, listen, was a, spirit, was a physical reality that pointed to a greater spiritual reality. That we, as the people of God, needed to be liberated, needed to be exiled, needed to be delivered from the captivity of Satan and sin. The New Testament is filled with the allusions back to these events, especially the Exodus event. And it points continually to the idea that through Jesus Christ, through what he accomplished on the cross, we can be fully delivered from the bondage of slavery and sin. God had promised to deliver his people from worldliness, to set them apart, and to give them instead a godliness that defined their lives. So let's look at these two promises quickly. He says, first, godliness is seen in the promise of intimacy. He grabs this profound truth that we are a temple of the living God. And he explains why this matters. Like I've kind of just alluded to, the temple was a dwelling place of God. It was where God promised to come and and dwell and manifest his presence in a particular way. God had always wanted to be in the midst of his people. He always wanted his people, uh, he always wanted to walk with his people all the way back from the Garden of Eden onward. The temple was replaced by Jesus himself, God dwelling amongst us. And now by extension, the New Testament says that we as individuals are the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6, but we as the church are also the corporate temple of the living God. We are the place where God dwells. The idea of God's dwelling points us to this reality of intimacy that God desires to experience with his people. There is a personal intimacy that God wanted to restore That sin had broken. The passage here that Paul quotes from the two, um, there in verse 16, he quotes from Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. If you want to write that down, we're not going to turn to them, but if you want to look it up for your own purposes. And then uh, Ezekiel 37, 27. Both of these passages deal with the first, one of them, excuse me, deals with the first, and the other one deals with the second exodus event, but they're lumped together here to describe the same thought. 
Again, whenever God promised to deliver his people out of bondage, the promise always included being delivered to him. You can see this most vividly in the Exodus event. You remember when when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go, let them go out into the wilderness. Do you remember the reason why that they were to be going into the wilderness in the first place? It wasn't just to be free from captivity. The statement, the refrain that you hear throughout the book of Exodus and Leviticus and even in Deuteronomy is this, listen, that they may serve me. The idea here is a separation unto God to worship him. Let them go. They're no longer a part of this system and this place. They're for me and for my purposes. God promises to walk amongst his people. He says, I will be their God. This has always been the purpose of God. There is an Old Testament event that highlights this reality, and I'll just, if you want to turn there, you can, in Exodus chapter 33. Moses, again, is is in the wilderness, and, and he's been giving the people the law, the people have disobeyed God, you know the story, and they've worshiped a, a golden calf that they made as an idol. God actually threatens to destroy all the people of Israel and start over again with Moses. Moses pleads for God's grace and mercy, and God grants it. But then in Exodus chapter 33, listen to how this intimacy is described here in the life of Moses. It says this in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Just listen to the intimacy in these statements. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. God, I don't want to go anywhere. This is what Moses said. I don't want to go anywhere that you're not going with us. God, what makes us distinct and unique, what defines us, is your presence among us. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? Listen to these words. So that we are distinct. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. I love that, that picture of the presence of God, the intimacy that we're called to experience. We are promised that God will walk among us, but can I just say this? Listen, the promise that God will walk among us is not the guarantee that we will experience the presence of God among us. We must also pursue a closer walk with God. God's promised to walk among us, but we must pursue a closer walk with him. That's why the very next statement is so crucial. This is the time Moses hears that God is going to be with his people. And what's Moses' response? Okay, God, thanks for just showing up. Here's what he says. He turns, listen, he turns and he pursues God like no other had up to that point in the Old Testament. He's, God, show me your glory. God, I want you. I know you're with me. I want more of you, though, God. I want more of you. I'm coming after more of you. So, God, reveal more of yourself to me, he says. 
Moses, God, what we need to get, we need to pursue a closer walk with God. We are guaranteed that God will walk with us, but we're not guaranteed of the closeness, the proximity. This is what James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is why what we're doing in our small group ministry is so critical. We are working hard at growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. We use this acronym CLOSER um, to describe how we access the presence of God, how we enjoy the presence of God. We grow closer to God through personal spiritual disciplines. That's how we draw near to God and we experience him then drawing near to us, changing us, leading us, guiding us, filling us with joy in him. But hear this, church, it has to be intentional. The intentional developing and practicing of the spiritual disciplines will, by God's grace, draw us closer to God. This passage in 2 Corinthians, but also the passage we looked at in Exodus 33, they don't just talk about the intimacy that's promised, they also identify the promise of identity. They point us to this picture of this sweet identity that we have, that they would enjoy him and his presence, listen, because they would enjoy being his. Did you get that? The church, the people of God, get to enjoy him because we have the privilege of enjoying being his. He has given himself uniquely to his people. If I could say it like this, intimacy is ultimately rooted in identity. Verse 17 and 18, it says, therefore go out from their midst. Again, just hear the language and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Here's the identity, listen. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He takes snippets from 2 Samuel 7, 14, Isaiah 52, 11, Ezekiel 20, 34, and Isaiah 43, verse 6. If you got all of those, I'm very impressed. Each context there deals with restoration to God. The language here, just listen to this. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. This is the adoption formula to define the relationship between God and his people. To mark them off as separate, their identity as God's children, part of God's family. As such, they look different, right? We understand that. That's part of what God is getting at here. Your identity as a, as a member of God's family means you will look differently. You will be a chip, so to speak, off the old block. Family resemblance is a powerful reminder of identity, isn't it? I mean, we just saw that this morning. We saw a bunch of kids up here with their parents, and one of the things you begin to see very clearly, it takes a little while, granted, to, to begin to see some of the distinguishing features of a newborn, but people instantly, you know this, if you've been a parent, you understand this. What's the question you get sick of hearing? Oh, oh who do you think they look like? They look like them. But the reality, listen, but the reality is, they don't just look like them. They have an identity because of their family connections. Their DNA allows them to look like their parents. As kids grow up, parents love to claim who their child is acting like. <laughs> That's your child, right? Did you ever say that to your spouse? That's your child. 
What you don't want to hear typically is as, 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 a, you know, as a parent with a, maybe a, a baby or a child, it's like, oh, that's your child? I had no idea you guys were even related. Look, sadly, sadly, this is the story of the people of God throughout the history of Israel. They were to be set apart and look distinct so that they could show their identity as being of God's family. Their rebellion, their resistance, their inability to look like the God they worshipped, their inability to be distinct from all the nations, their desire to want to be like all the nations around them. Sadly, this is the same reality that we face in the church of Jesus Christ. God's people have been the called out ones. They have been separated from the nations and the gods that they worship. But that requires us to reflect a newfound identity by looking radically different than the world around us. And when we walk closer with God, we will more closely resemble the God who has saved us. And when we do that, when we look like this God, we are reinforcing the promises of identity and intimacy. We are believing in godliness to set us apart, to make us distinct. You say, well, why is that important? That all the world will know the distinctiveness of the one true and living God we worship. God's people were only meant to look distinct because God was trying to show that he was different and distinct from all the gods of the world. And when we believe in godliness, and that that's what God is calling us to, it will lead us to right behavior. We are set apart finally. We are distinct when we behave with holiness. We are distinct in who we are. We are distinct in what we believe, and we are called to be distinct in how we live. We have been given a new identity and a new intimacy that comes with a new ability. Paul says it like this, listen, in light of these promises of intimacy and identity, he says this, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. He says, listen, the reality of who you are and what you've been given and intimacy with the God who created you should drive the way you live your life. It should change the way you live. It should make you distinct from those around you. Our behavior must increasingly reflect our belief in, this is, in that this is who we are. You say, how much of our behavior needs to change? Well, the demand that Paul gives here in chapter 7, verse 1, is total. Notice this. We have these promises about, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. It is holistic. He is calling us to look at every part of our lives, not just our actions, but our attitudes. His demand here is personal. He says, let us cleanse ourselves. You and I have a personal responsibility to deal with the sin in our lives, but, but together, collectively, we have a responsibility to deal with the sin in this place. We're going to look at more that in more detail next week. But we need to cleanse ourselves. You have a responsibility to deal with the sin in your life, even today. Body and spirit, He's getting at every part of us, 
everything that impacts our life. Notice this too, the demand is moral. He talks about defilement and holiness. He's implying here that there are things in our lives that do not match up with the law of God. The demand is continual. Notice that. He says, bringing holiness to completion. It's progressive. It's ongoing. It's continual transformation in our lives. The the demand is consequential. Notice what he says, to do it in the fear of the Lord. Knowing, listen, that every one of us is going to be accountable for how much we have looked like Jesus Christ when he comes to take us home. One day we're going to have an account to God for how we lived. And the fear of the Lord produces a healthy motivation in us to be holy. I'm going to answer the Lord, so are you. Every day when you're staring sin in the face, one of the things that should go through your mind is this. If I choose this path, I will answer to the Lord. Finally, listen, the call is hopeful. Do you realize that this this command to cleanse ourselves from every defilement, to bring holiness to completion, the fear of the Lord, it implies that this is something that we can actually do here and now. Knowing that we will one day give an account is a fearful thing, but there is a hope that is set in this verse reminding us that we can actually bring holiness to completion. Here's another way to translate that. Make your holiness perfect. Now, I understand that we will never get to perfection in this life, not until Jesus returns, but the call here is to keep striving every day. More holiness, more holiness, more holiness, less sin, cutting it out. So how do I do this? Let me give you three quick ways as we round the corner here. Three quick ways to do this. Find, forsake, and follow. Here's your heart check. Cleanse yourself. Find the sin that's in your life. Take the time to pray. Take the time to seek God's word. Take the time to ask those in your life, where are you seeing... um, defilement, sinfulness in my life, in my actions, in my attitudes. Say, Ian, give me me some help with that. Listen to what Paul says. Just listen to this list. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here's some examples, okay? This may be you. Find yourself in this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. There's the fear of the Lord. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. You say, Ian, give me some more. Okay, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. It shouldn't be hard for you to identify at least one thing in your life right now that is not pleasing to the Lord. You say, well, what do I do next? You forsake it. You lay it down at the foot of the cross. You come to Jesus and you see his open arms. You see that he paid the price for your sin on the cross. He suffered and died for you so that you no longer have to walk in that sin. You forsake it by confessing it, by repenting of it, and by embracing the grace that God extends to you over it. 
Say, God, I've sinned in these ways. I, I, have, I have defiled myself. I have rebelled against you. I have hurt many others. And God, I'm coming back to you because I know I can't fix myself. You must work in me by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit. God, help me, change me, fill me up once again with your power and your grace. Help me to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Help me to walk in a manner worthy of the God who has called me into his own kingdom and glory. And then you follow. You start moving forward in the right direction. Paul puts it like this. Just consider this for a moment. He says this, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Follow Jesus, the Holy One, who died to set you free and who empowers you to live a life of holiness for Him. Church, we are the called out ones. Come out from among them, the Word of God says. We are the redeemed people of God. We have been ransomed from the slave market of sin, so we must be aware of worldliness, we must believe in godliness, and we must behave with holiness. May our distinctiveness display the glory of the God who has called us into his own kingdom and glory. Father, we pray that you would work in a powerful way. Even now we pray, oh God, yes, even now, God, work in our hearts. God, may this not be just another message that we catalog in the back of our mind or that goes in one ear and out the other. Help us to see, oh God, the seriousness of this call to be separate. God, bring that conviction that we desperately need. Bring, Lord, the courage and the resolve to put off the old man and the manner of life that used to define us when we were not in you. God, cover us again with your grace. Help us, oh God, to rest, Lord, in the grace of the gospel. And Father, would you propel us, the beloved people of God who have been set apart for you, compel us and propel us forward, Lord, for the advancement of your kingdom and your glory. Do this, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.